to my zealous family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the 36th episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. To show support if you like this sort of content, it's very simple. Please take five seconds to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It truly does help small independent podcasts reach new people and grow the show with minimal effort. You can always leave a small review as well and follow at Metaphorogens on Instagram. That's at Metaphorogens where I'll be posting all of my updates, as well as on my personal website, kjbmercurio.com slash metaphorogens. As always, I will hold another draw on my 40th episode for, you know, even with this break, I have not thought of what outstanding swaggerific prize to give out yet, but stay tuned for more information on this extra cool thingamabob, whatever it ends up being. Okay, so for today's episode... I'll be talking about a term that I hear less frequently these days, but nevertheless got me curious about its usage during times of privilege. And we have liftoff. Literally, you have been invited by residents of the nearest solar system to ours. A member of the Alpha Centauri star system, the red dwarf Proxima Centauri is the closest star to Earth's sun, about 4.25 light years away. You giggle at this fact that light years represent a unit of distance rather than a more intuitive unit of time. The pilot looks towards you, but then focuses back on activating the hyperdrive. Your company, Blue Space Virgin, has been defying odds in the space race over the last three decades. Scientists have finally unified gravity with quantum mechanics, leading to a monumental acceleration of technologies that can acutely warp space-time in a predictable way. Explained in your first press conference as CEO of the company, using the fabric analogy, you demonstrated that shortcuts could be created between vast distances of space, thereby linking human civilization to resourceful regions of the observable universe. Blue Space Virgin's hyperdrive technology, which expands on warping space-time to also incorporate acceleration through fabricated shortcuts, allowed convoys to reach the solar system energetically fueled by Proxima Centauri. What would normally take about 160 Earth years takes four years, where travelers on your cruise shuttles have access to Michelin star restaurants, cinemas, nightclubs, water parks, exercise facilities, office space, even a simulated rainforest. Housing over 600,000 people over the journey, Cruise ships have been equated to flying countries, with medical centers, media controversies, even a self-governing status quo, along with cruise elections. Currently, you are on cruise ship number 456, named Cuttlefish. Over the four years, you conduct business deals on the ship's renowned office center, able to broadcast and transmit information to the Alpha Centauri star system, as well as Earth, using your patented technology of quantum enchantment. You're getting ready for Proxima Centauri's huge 100-year anniversary of governance, celebrated on all three of the system's Goldilocks planets. Upon arrival, there will be a quick tour showcasing each of the planets, and then travelers will be allowed drop-off at each of the planet's interstellar vacuum ports. 
The cruise's siren starts blaring on the intercom, signifying that the shuttle has entered the solar system's vacuum space and that all travelers on board must return to their rooms. This also signals the start of the introductory tour, as many members, including yourself, are just seeing the system for the first time. A remarkable feat of human ambition has built upon itself for hundreds of years, leading to this moment. How humans have changed, clearly, as look how far we have come. You hear a musical note warning of an announcement, similar to the start of a statement in an airport terminal on Earth. The pilot clears their throat and begins the introductory tour. Hello, this is the pilot speaking. This is an announcement to all travelers of cruise ship number 456, Cuttlefish. It's been four years since I last spoke with you, and today, right now, I speak with you once more to mark the end of our long journey. We made it. As mentioned previously, all crew members of the Cuttlefish wish to thank all those who chose to cruise with us, and of course the fantastic VIPs of whose sponsorships of this flight made it all possible. One such VIP, which we would all like to give special thanks, is the CEO of Blue Space Virgin, whose family dictated the course of human history in space over the last few centuries. They're also my boss, so a bit of ass-kissing couldn't hurt. With that line, you hear some laughter in the pilot's cockpit and smile to yourself in your onboard suite. The pilot continues, Customary to these long voyages, as many of you are just seeing this remarkable advancement of human civilization for the first time, is the introductory tour. We are lucky in that each of the planets are now aligned along their orbits, giving us clear sequential views before disembarking on our own ways. We have just passed Proxima Centauri on the shuttle's left, and therefore please, for those of you residing on the left or on the viewing decks, do continue to wear your radiation glasses for the remainder of this cruise. Now, we are passing First World, also known as Proxima B, or the planet in the habitable zone closest to the star. It is also often called the 51st state, depending on who you ask as the first arrivals were astronauts of the United States. Now, this planet is certainly not the largest, but being closest to the system's energy source has its benefits. Revolutionary technologies have been developed to capture as much starlight as possible. As you can probably see, those large flattened solar cells that look like planet wings. These cells are easily able to sustain the residents of First World's energy consumption, and therefore, this planet is very lucrative and houses many high-ranking VIPs. After a few minutes, you hear the musical note as the pilot returns. Now, we are passing Second World, also known as Proxima C. This planet is also often called the Republic, depending on who you ask, as the first arrivals here were cosmonauts of Russia. The planet is a bit larger than First World, and often battles with the planet due to First World's usage of solar energy capture that shields starlight whenever planetary orbits are aligned. These conflicts lead to standoffs in the cold parliamentary in-between, or that large space station bordering their vacuum space, where negotiations are made between the two worlds. Normal technologies of starlight capture, like solar cell projectiles that run farther along the planet's orbit, help Second World obtain energy during the months that they are shrouded by First World Shadow. Otherwise, many high-ranking VIPs still reside here. More moments go by before you hear the musical note for the pilot's final announcement. 
Now, we are passing Third World, also known as Proxima X. This planet is also often called the Global South, depending on who you ask, as the first arrivals were Exploronauts of developing nations on Earth. The planet is by far the biggest of the three, but being the farthest away from the star makes it difficult to obtain energy. Most of the time, first world or second world governments license their technologies to third world. However, this only meets the necessary energy demands by third world residents. Third world has looked to innovate away from solar cell usage, often using less cleaner energy sources that are frowned upon by its neighboring planets. With the largest population and unique environment, residing on third world is the most affordable. You hear a loud noise and the shuttle shakes, seemingly drifting off its trajectory. You look out your window and see a shower of comets racing past, so close that if the six meter thick transparent carbon fiber material weren't restricting, you could reach out and grab their beautiful tails. Hey, you turn around expecting to see someone, however you are alone in your suite, and there's a wall behind you. Hey, the person yells this time, and you look all around you but see no one. Hey! This time they scream so loudly that you flinched your hands to cover your face and knock off the virtual reality headset. Finally, your boss says, shaking their head. I said to test the metaverse equipment for five minutes, not five hours. Put the toy down and send me your report. Right away, you say disappointedly, and look out your window at the polluted skyline. Okay. The whole metaverse announcements by companies like Facebook and Microsoft have me really questioning what the future will be like. This pandemic really accelerated technologies in this regard, so why should we do anything in the outside world when we can do everything in the comfort of our own homes? Anyway, this story helps introduce a concept used most frequently during a time when we all almost rocketed ourselves to oblivion. So why do we remark on planetary problems when we realize incredibly superficial issues? What's the origin to the expression, first world? Most of this information was obtained from various articles discussing the origins to this expression. All sources we mentioned in the description. It's Saturday night. You and your roommate are in the kitchen as your stomachs loudly start to groan. Hungry, you walk over to the fridge and open it, revealing various fruits and vegetables, some yogurt, whole wheat bread, and a couple cans of Coke Zero. I don't know what to eat, you might say. Or how about another scenario? You had just bought a Bugatti last week, as one normally would, and was so excited to drive it today, only to realize that it's raining, and now you can't decide whether to drive your Lamborghini or Range Rover to the Michelin Star restaurant. Although one clearly exemplifies exaggerated hyperbole, at least anyone listening to this podcast, no offense, both of these examples identifies a problem that when thought more about, are arguably just as silly. These redundant problems are short-lived, sure, but epitomize the very essence of a consumerism society. In fact, the former example of having food yet not knowing what to eat when hungry is so prevalent in my own daily life that I was appalled at how easily the example came to me. In no place where life necessities are scarce and paramount to everyday survival does this problem emerge. 
Even more grotesque is the solution that one does not even need to eat the food they actually have, but could instead use widespread technology to order food at the restaurant chain across the street and have it delivered to you in less time than watching an episode of Netflix's Squid Game. And in each of those circumstances, a thought often arises, at least in my head, is the notion that these are first world problems. Begrudgingly, I used to say that a lot whenever I was given the choice that, in reality, does not matter. Which sneaker pair to wear with my attire, which color guitar to practice music with, which brand of toothpaste to get at the supermarket. These daily decisions are forks on a road with sidewalks, safety lights, and clear signage. They are choices that, no matter which you choose, lead to having protected feet, the opportunity to practice music, and have proper dental hygiene. Choices that come from a state of privilege. Privilege is something we hear about much more as of late. Privilege in the places you work, privilege in the neighborhoods you live, privilege in the color of your skin, or the privilege of the gender you identify with. These are definitely ongoing societal discussions that must be made to further civilization in the progressive front. And yes, I would fully agree that the understanding of privilege in its most basic sense needs more widespread awareness within individual societies or nations. But I'm talking more about geographical privilege, the kind that is given to you solely based on where, rather than what, you are born. This privilege is the type that is embodied in today's term, first world, which had more to do with geopolitics than the industrialization and economic stability that it often gets associated with. As mentioned in World Atlas, first world stems from the three world model that emerged after the Second World War and start of the Cold War. During this time, the United States and its allies, also known as the West, were one of two global superpowers that the world looked to after such cataclysm. Mentioned in Investopedia, these nations shared socio-political beliefs of democracy and capitalism, delegated valuable terms such as property and stability, highly literate, and believed in the rule of law. Countries excluding the U.S. that would fall under first world des designation include Great Britain, France, Canada, Australia, and Japan. On the other hand were nations designated as Second World, which prior to the 1990s included the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, Cuba, and Vietnam. Germany at the time was divided into East and West Germany, where the former aligned their interests with Second World socio-political ideologies, and the West aligned with First World ideals, building a wall to separate the two. Second World nations exercised a more centralized form of government, mainly socialism and communism, like Stalin's Russia, and Mao's China. There's also a third world designation, which writer Evan Andrews on History.com writes, quote, encompassed all the other countries that were not actively aligned with either side in the Cold War. These were often impoverished former European colonies and included nearly all the nations of Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, and Asia. This term, at least at the time, would also include neutral countries like Switzerland, Sweden, Finland, Ireland, and Austria, who had well-developed economies. Even Saudi Arabia, a country juxtaposed with pictures of wealth in the Arabian Peninsula, would also be classified as a third-world country. Therefore, this three-world model of first, second, or third nations are certainly outdated and is politically and perhaps modernly incorrect. That got me wondering, how does the globalized world classify nations respectfully? 
In a 2015 NPR article, writer Mark Silver discusses the usage of third world and spoke with academics, economists, policy coordinators, and media experts on this topic. To summarize, many are rightfully against the three world model and have opted to use language such as developed or developing countries. Dr. Shows Kessie, a social psychologist at the University of Cape Town, even hates this dichotomy, stating, quote, The developed-developing relationship in many ways replaces the colonizer-colonized relationship. The idea of development is a way for rich countries to control and exploit the poor. You can see this through the development industry, where billions of dollars are spent, but very little gets achieved. These days, the World Health Organization uses terms like low, middle, high-income countries, and media outlets just name the countries they wish to talk about. Whoa, this became a history lesson. What's the point of this podcast again? Right, the origin of the term. Who or what is the term first world attributed to? Most sources state that the term, along with the three-world model, was first quoted by French demographer Alfred Sauvé in a 1952 article published in L'Observateur titled Three Worlds, One Planet. Nations Online mentions that this article certainly coined the term third world, where the article ended, quote, comparing the third world with the third estate, c'est tièrement ignore, exploit, mépris, comme le tiers état, or... This ignored third world, exploited, scorned like the third estate. I write this segment a bit aggravated, and perhaps you were able to tell. Terms that were thought to be innocent throughout a majority of my life were not only derogatory, but also just clubhouse drama built around geopolitics. Surely there are better methods to label nations that don't isolate those or present a global hierarchy, but maybe there is just no getting around that aspect of human nature. Whether you find yourself in a developed or developing, a low to middle income or high income, a first, second, third, or newly added fourth world country, I hope that from the bottom of my heart, we will prevail as one global effort to tackle problems humankind faces, problems such as global warming, poverty, and disease, so that perhaps one day we can all look into our full refrigerators and proclaim together, I don't know what to eat. Before we get to the next segment, do you love podcasts? What about starting one yourself? I often think back to early 2020, a time so seemingly distant in the past, and reflect on starting this podcast. I believe it was one of the best decisions I have ever made, and I say that for two reasons. One personal reason is that it provides you with some secret motivation to learn about things you are actually interested in, while framing concepts in ways that make sense to you and an audience. For a professional reason, this experience has given ample opportunity to meet people I find fascinating, podcasters, science communicators, people passionate about their hobbies, and even some real talk with friends of mine. Starting a podcast can be difficult. What sort of microphone should you buy? What topics should you discuss? What recording software do you need? What the hell is an RSS feed? However, you can find answers to all that and more through my podcasting hosting platform of choice, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is a seamless service that supports anyone wishing to launch and produce a professional podcast, hosting over 100,000 people on their platform. Your show is completely online and listed on all the major podcast directories just minutes after uploading your recording. 
In addition, you automatically get a stylish podcast website, detailed analytics to monitor the growth of your show, access to videos and discussion forums about all podcast topics like industry trends and marketing your show, plus much, much more. There's also an incredibly supportive community of podcasters in the Buzzsprout community offering great advice on any questions you may have. If you wanted to test out this whole podcast gig, you can jumpstart your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card by clicking the affiliate link in the episode's description. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you to their service and will help support Metaforgins and money towards creating more super cool butterfly merch. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. And now, back to the episode. For my communication segment... I would like to talk about a concept so tangled within society that it has become both an ally to cancel culture, yet also somehow an opponent to free speech. And that topic is political correctness. Now, this topic is something most would argue being too taboo for any conversation outside of social science classrooms, in that political correctness and the greater web of ideas it touches are about as logically and culturally complex as the origin of the universe. Yet, How many of us have bared witness to the deserved or undeserved fall of high-profile individuals over an offhand remark, a callous tweet or status update, an insensitive picture resurfaced from the Polaroid era? The speed at which information can be shared among the global community is applauded during moments of problem-solving and social connectivity, but its uniformity has also become a battleground for judgment and impulsivity. We trust, despite not being there, that what we read from news outlets and checkmark members of platforms are interpretations and assess them by the amount of similar members who engage. We observe this time and time again, and I need not list those who have, in the words of journalist John Ronson, quote, been publicly shamed, shamed so bad that they lost their jobs, their family and friends, and sometimes their own lives. I am not to be sympathetic to those who undoubtedly are instigators of public discourse, those whose personality stems from a language of hate and divisiveness through unscrupulous strategizing. I also aim not to discourage that what you say out loud in speech or writing should be thought about and thought hard about before being expressed. As listeners of this communications podcast for hopefully more than this episode will know, language is one of the most powerful weapons we have. Therefore, I must be careful through clarification during this segment. And the topic in question doesn't just touch on social faux pas, it is deep-rooted in our politics, hence the name, along with civil rights movements that push societal norms towards a more progressive, a more inclusive community. It aims to shed light on the underrepresented and, at the same time, the privileged, which is typically a cemented power dynamic that only recent years have proven to be shifting ever so slowly. I say that, but many of you can look toward world superpowers and see both the environmental and ideological climate are regressing to times we don't want it to regress to. The easiest example is of course the 2016 US election, in which a demagogue was elected president of the quote, free world, a term that I suppose makes sense if juxtaposed to other global superpowers. Sadly, today's concept was not only adopted by polarizing conservatives as an obstacle to free expression, but Trump shot it down, this obstacle, on a New York street and nobody could stop him. To quote writer Moira Weigel in a 2016 Guardian article titled Political Correctness, How the Right Invented a Phantom Enemy, quote, Trump did not simply criticize the idea of political correctness, he actually said and did the kind of outrageous things that PC culture supposedly prohibited. 
The first wave of conservative critics of political correctness claimed they were defending the status quo, but Trump's mission was to destroy it. But this episode is not about Trump, nor any of the individuals that have been targeted by PC social justice warriors out for blood. Moreover, I would like this episode to be more abstract conversation about the original intentions of political correctness in contrast to the real consequences that we see today. Of course, I am by no means an expert on this topic as I step outside the comfort of biology. Oh, how I love the simplistic social dynamic of growing cells in culture media. And so I invite all of you who have listened to this segment in full to reach out to me for a continued expansion of these ideas. This podcast, as I've mentioned in the past, is a platform for me to organize and discuss my thoughts on topics that years of smarter people have dedicated their lives to elaborating on. Let's, unsurprisingly, start with the origin of the term itself. Wikipedia describes political correctness as, quote, a term used to describe language, policies, or measures that are intended to avoid offense or disadvantage to members of particular groups in society. In a 2015 article published in the conversation titled Political Correctness, Its Origins and the Backlash Against It, Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University, Dr. Clive Hamilton states that, quote, the term emerged in the West in the 1970s as a kind of self-parody used by activists in the various new social movements and the new left more broadly. It was borrowed from the English translation of Chinese communist texts, particularly those of the Cultural Revolution, seen by most in the new left as doctrinaire and Orwellian. As this form of language policing spread into the wider community, it became a highly effective means of confronting the deep-rooted prejudices embedded in everyday words and expressions. These prejudices are something that society has suppressed for years. For myself, reflecting on the stereotypes I've uttered and unconscious biases I displayed over the course of my life is embarrassing. So imagine that at a global scale, with much more nefarious and even conscious intent. For example, during my undergraduate studies, I would laugh at the notion of safe spaces, an idea that generalized the notion that everybody should feel safe within the university campus. Of course, this should be held to high regard, but the policy became a convoluted concept that allowed people to shut down discussion if topics that came up were labeled, quote, off-limits to them. This would often include discussions that brought up arguments against the progressive norms or even simply inquiring about topics about progressive norms. Now, instead of deriding those who feel uncomfortable, I empathize, for I have no idea the impact these topics have on lives of people in my community. In a 2021 article published in The New Yorker titled The Purpose of Political Correctness, interviewee and columnist for The Guardian Nezreen Malik described the dynamic within modern liberal institutions like a university. Quote, there are also more people in these liberal spaces that fall on the sharp end of the debates that people previously were quite indulgent of. There are more people of color. There are more people from immigrant backgrounds. There are more people who are gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And the progress that we have seen in liberal institutions in opening up their doors to people from different backgrounds means that there is now a conflict about agreed-upon red lines that existed in those places before those people came in. And so it's also a discussion about how a society expands and includes new people in these spaces that are very influential and that manage and amplify national debates on quite controversial and quite sensitive issues. The realization that I am in a state of privilege whenever I enter a conversation about something that I have not truly experienced the consequences of is something I learned shamefully late in life. 
My ability to participate with chosen language is a freedom for which I exercise because I am comfortable doing that, and I cannot look down on my peers who, given the same freedom, choose not to execute because of justified concerns. In this case, political correctness could be used in a way that Vox writer Amanda Tobbs says, quote, is a term we use to dismiss ideas that make us uncomfortable, and that by continuing to exercise my freedom by disregarding the emotions attached to it, the term, quote, is a way to say an issue has no value. More importantly, and as a middle ground, if you will, the act of forever ignoring the conversation is not a solution either. In a 2015 Vox article titled The Truth About Political Correctness is that it doesn't actually exist, she quotes outspoken liberal pundit Jonathan Chait saying, quote, Of course liberals are correct not only to oppose racism and sexism, but to grasp in a way conservatives generally do not that these biases cast a nefarious and continuing shadow over nearly every facet of American life. Since race and gender biases are embedded in our social and familial habits, our economic patterns, and even our subconscious minds, they need to be fought with some level of consciousness. The mere absence of overt discrimination will not do. Although I was not speaking directly about overt discrimination, this general concept of the obvious presentation of prejudice does not change the systemic policies and unconscious biases that hold the global community back. Jesus, Kev, is political correctness good or bad? Just tell me. <laughs> in full honesty, it's difficult, mainly due to the fact that, well, there are no facts in this realm like perhaps most of us listening are so used to, and that many people, including myself, have opinions on the matter. Articles in The Atlantic and the Pew Research Center have demonstrated that your opinion towards PC culture is heavily dependent on where you fit in our unmentioned status quo, your overall background, and the type of government policies you support. It doesn't help that the ideals that represent a polarizing concept are always the loudest at the extremes, in which PC proponents are branded as internet mobsters with excessive rules or for punishment, and PC opponents are labeled as the white, power-hungry patriarchy. Often, most conversations with most people lie somewhere in the middle, and do say a lot about where organizations and individuals can implement real change. Mentioned in a 2006 article published in the Harvard Business Review, writers mention five principles that can be utilized for constructively engaging differences within these dynamics, which I will summarize here. One, to pause. Two, to connect. Three, to question yourself. Four, get genuine support. And five, shift your mindset. In other words, take time to empathize with your interlocutors and reflect internally about your own ideals and morals while seeking advice if there are conflicting findings. How can one be against something that is the mantra of any discussion on diversity and inclusion? We, as a society, should be striving towards one where we all look around at the incredible amount of differences in our looks, personalities, and cultures, deeming that a normal phenomenon at any stage of our careers within any environment around the world. We can gift the term political correctness to either extreme, but then unfairly not give its origins any justice. In a 2018 essay published in The Economist by then Masters of Science candidate in global health, Julia Simons, titled, Has Political Correctness Gone Too Far? She answers that, quote, At best, the notion of political correctness having gone too far is intellectually dishonest, a fallacy similar to a straw man argument or an ad hominem attack. At worst, it serves as a rallying cry to cover up the excesses of the most illiberal in our society. 
This is echoed in a 2016 article published in Scientific American titled The Personality of Political Correctness, in which PC proponent Marianne Iam argues that, quote, if PC means minimizing sexual and racial harassment, discouraging homophobic, racist, and sexist discourse within educational settings, and curtailing policies that victimize oppressed groups, then political correctness is not merely correct, but morally obligatory as well. Shutting down conversation in the name of political correctness from either side of the aisle will not change the systemic oppression the underrepresented have been pointing out for years. What's promising, I believe, is that this debate, which is hardly close to being settled, is a phenomenon that arguably emerges within places where this is actively changing for the better. As mentioned, institutions have finally opened their doors for more inclusivity, and thus, new members continue to be observant of where the next line regarding equality needs to be across. And again, language will be the weapon of choice for those expanding rights, as well as those in power to dictate those rights. So... Bottom line, be conscious of your words as it's the correct thing to do, politically or apolitically. For my sixth guest of the season, I'll be interviewing a longtime friend whose personal experience as an immigrant, educational background in worldly affairs, and professional experience in a government environment has led to invaluable insights on language and rhetoric from a global perspective. She's a senior policy advisor at the Canada Border Services Agency. After immigrating from South Korea in grade six, she pursued a Bachelor of Arts degree at McGill, then a Master of International Affairs degree at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She has a great love for learning about different cultures and using her foreign language skills to make new friends wherever possible. Aside from being a federal public servant, she's a huge Disney geek, a vocal feminist, and a visible minority advocate, and an obsessive pet mom to her two cats. Please welcome the tremendously sharp Tiffany Lee. We will start now. So thank you, Tiffany, for joining me on, I guess, the first episode coming back from a small break that I took. Honestly, it's an honor. A uh, close friend of mine here. I did introduce you uh, before this uh, discussion will be aired uh, as part of the episode, but just in case people who skipped to the interview uh, part of the episode, uh, I'll just summarize it again. So Tiffany is currently a senior policy advisor at the Canada Border Services Agency. She completed a Master's of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa, which actually I didn't know this, so that's a shame on my part as one of your friends. <laughs> she also did a Bachelor of Arts at McGill University. And uh, just looking through your LinkedIn profile there, Tiff, 
Uh, you also interned at many different policy organizations with a focus on, um, I guess, policies at the global level, like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the Kevin Institute, which I thought was really cool. You're also a vocal feminist and a, a visible minority advocate. So again, thank you, Tiff, for coming on the episode today. What I normally do at the beginning of these episodes is introduce a guest, but I also give the guest a chance to talk a little bit about their experience in terms of uh, their education. So in academia, like your Bachelor of Arts, uh, your Master's again. Uh, I know we met at uh, Global Affairs Canada, so a department in uh, the federal government in Canada, so you can talk about that, as well as obviously what you're doing now at the CBSA and any you know current relevant extracurriculars you might be involved in. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I'll kind of broaden the coverage to outside of academia because um, that kind of stops at my master's. So as Kevin said, um, I did my bachelor's at McGill, uh, majoring in political science along with hundreds of other students that attend that particular university, um, minored in Asian and African studies. So that was kind of an interesting combination. Um, honestly, university was a whirlwind for me, uh, both from an academic perspective and from an extracurricular perspective. I'm a first generation immigrant from South Korea. So I was the first person in my family to attend a university in Canada. So going into it, I had no idea what to expect, what the academic standards were, how evaluations were done, even just down to, you know, how to do course selection. I had zero background to work from. So a lot of it was just kind of me figuring things out as I go. I was in Montreal, which was a different city, whereas the rest of my family were in Toronto. So it was my first time kind of living alone, um, being independent in a new city. So I think there was a lot more non-academic factors that kind of played a bigger part in my life than the academia portion, honestly. Um, the biggest thing being my activities in the International Relations Student Association of McGill. In short, we call it IRSAM. Um, we ran a lot of model UN conferences, including the McMahon, which I believe is the second largest in North America. So that was another fun experience. It's what got me introduced to really the world of international policy and diplomacy. Um, we're registered as an NGO under the United Nations. So we had a chance to go in and actually watch like a general assembly and session and things like that. So all very interesting background that led me to my master's degree at Carleton. Um, actually, one of the mentors that I had while I was at McGill was a public servant, and he himself had graduated from NIPSIA. So it's how I got to know the school. And once again, um, first person in my family to pursue a master's degree in general. Actually, my father's education stopped at bachelor's. My mom never went to university. It was definitely a whole new level of academic pursuits. Um, so more learning curves there for sure. I think it was two years of high stress very much focused on trying to make sure that I'm setting myself up to find a job afterwards, um, throwing myself into internships and co-ops wherever possible. It's during this time that I had the opportunity to at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is a very interesting organization. It started as almost like a lobbying group for Canadian municipalities, so it was a domestic group. And then it branched out and now it's developed an international tranche of work where they partner with municipal governments abroad in developing countries and actually conduct international development projects. So it's a very interesting structure where you have an NGO in Canada that's developing partnerships between Canadian and foreign government municipalities um, to try to help with social development and that kind of stuff. So 
Um, at the time, I was specializing in international development for my master's degree, so that's kind of how it all aligned. I kind of stepped away from the international development world as I started working at Global Affairs Canada. I started in um, the climate change uh, funds kind of Bureau of Global Affairs, and this was when actually the Trudeau government first came in. So for the first time after a number of years of climate change, having received no government support from the conservative government, everything was pouring down the pipes. So hmm. I happened to walk in at a very interesting timing where the staff was like a third of what it used to be, but suddenly climate change became a new political priority. I saw the good and the bad, the struggles of everyday public servants trying to do the best that they can to really make an impact and you know, leverage Canada's position as a relatively more friendly face in multilateral organizations to get stuff done that's actually good for the planet. But also, you know, the tough side, we're a middle power. We're not the U.S. We can't bully other countries around. There's only so much we can do to leverage the outcome of certain decisions. So having gone through that whole process, um, I think there was a part of me that felt frustrated enough to want to give something else another go, which is where I met you, Kevin. Actually, that's how I moved into the world of trade and trade commissioner. And that's uh, that's where we became friends. So. Yeah, kind of a big tour around government, trade commissioner job led to a trade policy job. Again, very interesting timing. It's when Canada was renegotiating the NAFTA. So uh, we were stuck in the uh, thick of the COSMA negotiations, now they call it. Um, got to attend quite a few of the negotiating tables. Um, had a chance to actually go to Mexico as a part of the Canadian delegation with a diplomatic passport to help negotiate um, a different free trade agreement and things like that. So lots of learning curves in a very compact period of time. And now I'm in security, which is completely not related to international development or trade. <laughs> so I think my interests are very broad. It's anything related to international policy. Um, so to be honest, I think when it comes to this particular topic with political correctness, Perhaps it gives me a little bit more of a bird's eye view on how this topic might be treated in different forums, because everybody looks at this in a different way. It's a very subjective term. It's a very abstract concept. My not-so-short summary of my experiences, Excellent. but I think it meets your prompt. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that, Tiff. Uh, great intro. Uh, just a couple of follow-up questions from there. As somebody who doesn't have... Uh, I suppose that family motivation to go into higher education um, was sort of similar in my in my respect. Uh, my brother did do a Bachelor of Arts um, when he was in um, in university. So I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, what made you go into uh, doing a higher education degree? You know, funny enough, even though my parents themselves never had the opportunity to pursue higher education, um, the idea of going to university or even a master's was never a question. It was always a given. I think mm. my parents, like with many other first-generation immigrants, the reason, the biggest reason why they immigrated was so that they could give us better education. In Korea, the education system is very rigid. Um, I dare say that in many ways it's kind of outdated. It's very much based on memorization, regurgitation, standardized tests, and quite frankly, it really leaves no room for anybody to show their talent outside of the very set definition of what it means to be an excellent student. I fit that bill to a degree, but not entirely. I had very strong likes and dislikes, and the subjects that I disliked, it showed. And in a hyper-competitive society like Korea, there's a limit to how much you can go with that kind of tendencies when it comes to academic pursuits. 
which is completely opposite to my sister, who's like the perfect Asian child model that you could ask for. So I think when it comes <laughs> to, am I going to go to university or am I going to do a master's? I honestly never even questioned, would I? You know, the bigger question was, in what do I want to do the master's? I think bachelor's was a little bit easier and straightforward. But with master's, right. it came with the question of, well, what job am I going to want? What do I want to work in? And my mom, since immigrating, has been a housewife. And my dad owns his own business as a landscaper. So we really didn't have any amount of connection or insight into what it looks like to work in any amount of a corporate setting in Canada. So I think that's where a lot of the introspection happened, more so than am I going to pursue you know, post-secondary education. Well, I guess, yeah, everybody has their own motivations to do higher education. Uh, it's always good to see where the origin comes from or, I guess, their own inspiration for doing something that is obviously difficult, which is why um, many people stop at, let's say, a bachelor's or might not even do a bachelor's after their, uh, I guess, high school. In Canada, we call it high school education. So really cool stuff. You did mention there, uh, I believe it was for uh, the trade commissioner service where we met. Did you notice any sort of, um, I guess, differences in the dynamic from you know, your team there when you know they're so used to the how a political government party is is running the show and then it starts to switch to a completely opposite point of view in terms of a dynamic within a team did you see any differences um that you can recall i think there was a bit of a recognition the people that i worked with also had been in government for a very long time this wasn't their first administration change so i don't think right. it was something foreign to them the idea of a revolving door of political parties having an impact of how they have to prioritize their work um, but certainly it does end up putting a different kind of emphasis on how quickly you want to proceed with a file depending on whether you have the approval from the political masters or not like when we i guess when we met i wasn't sure if you started at the same time as me probably started before me a little bit more, um, I think, about the same time. But. Yeah, I was uh, completely lost in terms of how trade and business works. I'm just a measly little scientist in a lab who somehow scored this really good paying gig <laughs> as, as part of my student co-op program. <laughs> but I think that the overall team that we had, so me and Tiff were on, I guess, different core teams, but essentially we were part of a larger uh, group that called the Trade Commissioner Service that helped Canadian businesses flourish in different sectors, I guess. Uh, obviously, mine was more biology-based, so that's probably why I was hired, <laughs> more so than the trade knowledge I had very little of. But uh, yeah, I did remember our group was quite a nice group, I think. Um, learns yeah. a lot of soft skills, like you said. I What I learned mm. very quickly through that experience, though, was that having the right manager is so important government um, <laughs> Fair enough. very much promoted kind of internal competition and it was very explicitly um, gladiator ring kind of an environment which I think I is not really what um, a lot of people aspire to have as a work environment nowadays so you know from the perspective of me pivoting away from international development to a different area of government work it was absolutely a key stepping stone but on a personal level, it was a cause for a lot of personal stress, like a lot of emotional, like extra burden right. of having to do a master's degree at the same time. So I can see why you came into my office and stole all my chocolates. 
I believe they were offered to me, so there was very little feeling involved. I, 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 if I remember correctly, they were offered to me by in large quantities. So uh, I don't know. I don't know, Kev. Fair play. Fair play. <laughs> As you know, the episode topic that I chose today was a. Uh, quite a charged one as you <laughs> as you have mentioned already in our emails back and forth um which is political correctness and it's a topic that i guess is not an old topic or sorry it's not a new topic it's definitely an old topic um but the fact that it's discussed and um back and forth with many prominent people powerful people in the world um even till today is to me a little surprising but um, I think that sort of discussion needs to occur. So in terms of this episode, you know, I, I love discussing the unconscious aspect of terms like these, like political correctness. And as someone with your personal educational and professional background, does the term carry any positive or negative connotation to you? I think there's a little bit of both. Funny hmm. thing, I actually had to do a dictionary.com search on what term political correctness would actually mean and the, <laughs> and the language that i was given is quote marked by or adhering to a typically progressive orthodoxy on issues involving especially ethnicity gender sexual orientation or ecology this term is kind of always a bit of a big question mark to me because i feel like it's one of those terms that we throw around a lot but everybody seems to have a slightly different understanding of what it actually means so from my perspective, you know, as a woman and a visible minority and an immigrant from an East Asian country that is not China, in some ways, it was a positive thing that helped us open the door to discussions about topics that were previously kind of discussed, right? The fact that, for instance, Lunar New Year is Lunar New Year across a lot of East Asian and South Asian countries, and it's not just Chinese New Year. Um, or, you know, just even talking, even language choices that you use to address certain people, right? But also at the same time, I do wonder if it's kind of becoming a bit of a catch-all terminology that people use to lump together everything that perhaps makes them feel uncomfortable, regardless of whether it actually is an offensive term or not. I sit a little bit on the fence. I think the motivation behind it and the idea behind it, if we're just relying on the objective dictionary definition of it, is positive. But as with anything, how people use it in everyday life. You did mention the, I guess, parts of your identity, right? Mm. Um, how does those aspects of you impact the way you think about political correctness? I think it's inherently biased to what helps me first, right? I think that's kind of a subconscious thing that everybody goes towards you look at an opportunity to kind of advocate for something that you identify with and you try to see if there's a way that it fits into that, right? Like I just gave mm. the example, for instance, about Lunar New Year being across a lot of Asian countries that is not just China, for instance, right? So yeah, I think right. there are definitely areas where I keep an eye out, especially for me. I think my identity kind of gives it my own definition of what political correctness should be from my perspective. And that's kind of why I said at the beginning, I feel like this term means different things for different people, because what they right. perceive as being compliant to the more progressive orthodoxy that better represents who they are as a person is going to defer depending on the individual. I think a lot of things that are also in my subconscious bias probably plays a part as well. You know, it's a, it comes to like a full circle, right? We have obviously conscious biases that 
we are trying to you know progress that front and that's a lot easier than the unconscious biases that we all yeah. share on uh, that is shared amongst you know where we live in the world where we were born parental um inspiration stuff like that i have parents who are not politically correct at all <laughs> um and, and actually like the funny thing is is like the term political correctness does not exist in my mother tongue not mm. there at all like the, if you were to try That's to interpret it or translate the term into korean there is no direct translation you could come up with a couple of paragraphs to try to describe what it is trying that you're trying to get at but there's no way for you to be like okay here's mm. the vocabulary in korean to me it's also kind of raises a bit of a question of i guess cultural movements between the west and asia i think when it comes to what we view in north america as progressive culture is, are things that are still in many ways considered taboo in at least in Korea and from what I understand a lot of other Asian countries. So perhaps mm -hmm. the fact that the vernacular has been developed here but not where I come from in and of itself might be a demonstration of you know different paces at which the cultures are developing and how the language is formulating around that. And this language sort of I'll talk about this later as well, but this language sort of stems a lot from liberal institutions like universities and institutes and whatnot. I'm curious that when you did your education in your Bachelor of Arts, uh, that was at uh, McGill, your master's, uh, and that was at Carleton University. So you've been to two universities now. Did you ever encounter the term political correctness in your studies or was this more of an emergent phenomenon in your career? Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. I think for me, it was interesting because especially in my master's, I think during my bachelor's, it was very still general high level information, right? So we never actually delved into things as much. I think the only time when I had a little bit of exposure to the concept of political correctness was when I was taking electives in anthropology. And the professor himself actually said something really interesting, which is that anthropology is very much a white man's study. Um, because he, oh. he was saying that, you know, it was very much like a product of colonialism and how they kind of went in to see how other people, quote unquote, functioned and lived their lives and how that culture played out and things like that, which I thought was kind of a very interesting remark, especially coming from like a white male professor. I think he's right. correct to a degree, but also at the same time, observation is a human tool in any culture and country. So Perhaps it's a matter of, you know, how formalized it is into kind of like a branch of academia that he was trying to get at. But that was kind of like my slight exposure to the concept there. But it really came more to a head, I think, during my master's because I studied international development. Because foreign assistance and international aid very much started with the concept of a bit of a developed country's burden, so to speak, right? Kind of like a white man's burden type of thing. This idea of, you know, what is loosely termed in the discipline now, quote, poverty porn. The idea of you have to mm. kind of send out the most, you know, dramatic, expletive images of these people suffering in an effort to try to get people to send more money and pool resources and, you know, really pull at the heartstrings of donors that are still sitting in front of cable TV. You know, even the term developing country in and of itself, there's still a lot of debate as to if that's the correct terminology, right? We started with first versus third world country, and now we're at developed versus developing. And, you know, the language seems to change constantly. So I think that's kind of where it really started to come up a little bit more. 
And it translated into my work when I was at GAC, working at the Climate Change Funds Bureau too, because if you think about it, the countries that are most impacted by climate change is not the developed ones, developing ones, where we're expecting the most amount of climate change refugees, loss of natural habitat and resources and people's livelihoods and such. To what degree can we actually assist? It's something that's certainly become more an intrusive thought as my career progressed. I see less of it now, surprisingly, but in a discipline where, you know, it used to be touted as a sign of Western altruism and generosity, um, as opposed to the realities, which is that it's very much kind of tit for tat and every country has their best interest at heart. And I'm not criticizing that, but that's the more correct app and portrayal of why these things happen, right? It's always kind of floated around as like an abstract concept around the work. Is it ever really explicitly addressed? Not really. I mean, you don't really look at, you know, okay, are we going to get more assistance in the next country? Would this be politically correct, right? Um, <laughs> and it's never really thought about it in that perspective. So, yeah, it's, um, it's certainly made its headway in a lot of different work areas for sure. You also answered uh, the next question I had for you, sort of, that um, how it sort of creeps into your, your work now that, you, not now, but you have been involved in many different government departments um, at many different levels of government as well. Um, so I guess, as you mentioned, it sort of has different uh, capacities, you know, was the word you mentioned, within these different groups that you have involved, you have been involved in. It also depends on what is the direction that we're given from higher-ups, too. There was once a time when it was okay to call developing countries third world and, you know, treat them as less than. Um, now is not that anymore. The thing about government is it's such a massive machine and not everything changes overnight. So the leadership can change, the narrative can change, and for what it's worth, all the public servants, thousands of them that are working really hard to try to implement these changes, try, but it's also very hard to move away from things that have been the way it is for decades. How do you feel about the World Health Organization's uh, language of instead of using develop and developing, they use something along the lines of um, lower to middle income to higher income countries? Do you think that language is a better replacement to the developed and developing or the first and third and second world? To be honest with you, I kind of personally prefer developed versus developing. Um, and the reason behind that is I feel like anything that slaps on an income bracket on a country can become almost like a bigger connotation than saying that, you know, this country is in the process of doing something. Because that's what I see when I see developed versus developing, right? And obviously, we're using a very, like, Western-centric lens here. Not everybody defines what is developed the same way. But in the way that we use it in North America, to me, developing at least still had, like, a very positive connotation. It's a movement towards something. High-income, middle-income, low-income country, I feel like it very much kind of puts you in a little bit of a bracket. You know, it's not a tax income bracket. We're talking about countries and people that live in it, right? And I think it also has a tendency of glossing over some of the things that perhaps even people in the so-called high-income countries don't want to look at, which is income disparity. So I get what they're trying to achieve, but I'm not entirely sure if that measurement is one that is sustainable because it's going to be a moving yardstick. 
what's what's considered a low income country now is going to be different from what is high income country. And I think in some ways it also continues to perpetuate this idea of there being no ceiling to economic growth and development. I don't mm. think that's necessarily true. Like I'm not an economist by any means, so that's my caveat, but I don't think this idea of continuously selling endless economic growth forever and ever is necessarily a realistic one or a sustainable one, certainly not an equitable one. Mm. So to me, the fact that you're putting countries continuously in a relative position of comparison, now it's just based on income, not even based on other aspects of how a country is developing, in some ways feels almost a little bit more demeaning. There's certainly not a consensus in you know international affairs global affairs even in governments around the world of what the terminology should be that you know doesn't segregate the powers that be versus you know the the countries that may not have as much power especially with um in terms of economic development like you said i mean like if i if i were to play devil's advocate to myself like i would say at least now you're not necessarily measuring a country against the the very Eurocentric standard of what a developed quote-unquote country needs to look like. That, to me, would be the argument for in favor of what the World Health Organization has done. I think at that point we're splitting hairs. Are we considering developed versus developing countries based on whether they're a democracy, whether they're economically advanced, whether they have XYZ infrastructure versus you know whether they have a certain level of income? I don't know. Yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a concept of like GDP, for instance. 90s, early 2000s, it was heralded as the yardstick to measure any amount of economic development in a country. And now there's a lot of econ- economists and social scientists that are actually raising the question of, well, you know, is GDP really the best standard to measure whether a country is doing well or not? Because there are so many factors that it actually doesn't encapsulate that right. reflects into what the country is as a whole. So. I wonder if the developed and developing, and this is from articles I've read for the past week or so, you know, countries that are labeled as developed, let's say, um, does that mean that these countries have no more room to develop anymore? Like, should other countries strive, let's say developing countries, should they strive to be like the developed countries? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I think that's probably the rationale behind why maybe folks are trying to move away from that language, right? As to whether these countries have no other room for development, I mean, (laughs) I mean, I come from a country that's considered development, but we're also ranked number one or two in suicide rates among young people across OECD countries. U.S. is considered the pinnacle of developed country, and yet they can't get gun control under, you know, enough political purveyance and there's school shootings happening left, right and center. Canada, we like herald ourselves as a developed country, but look at all the stuff that's happening on indigenous reserves. I mean, it certainly does not set a gold standard. I Mm. think perhaps this is an area where it would be interesting to kind of look back at the origins of where the term developed versus developing even came from. Perhaps a podcast that looks at the (laughs) origins of metaphors might get into that. (laughs) I don't know. Did I I just give you an inspiration for another episode? I don't know, Cass. Wait. Let me write that down. But <laughs> <laughs> again, that's that's kind of why I like doing these these um these episodes on the origins of words and expressions, just because yeah. you know we we say things um, just because we heard them and just because powerful organizations and and parties, government parties, say these things and we kind of implement that into our own lexicon, but we never truly think about where they come from. 
And sometimes it's innocent, sometimes it's not innocent. So um, definitely important to learn about the origins of words. Yeah. And especially for me, it's like I, I speak multiple languages, right? Like my mother tongue is Korean. English is my second language, but I also speak Mandarin. I know French. I know Spanish. I'm not fluent across all of them the same way, but even if I just compare among the languages that I'm most comfortable in, which is Korean and English first and foremost, and then French and Mandarin, the words that we use to describe the same thing is very different. Like we're mm. talking developed versus developing country in Korean, developed is Sonjinguk, which literally means, you know, kind of the most forward evolved country. Fujinguk is kind of like the later evolved country. So it gets at the same concept, but we describe it in different ways. It's always okay. interesting to see kind of how things change over time. It's kind of a good segue in terms of, you know, where political correctness uh, is spoken frequently. Um, I kind of mentioned this already earlier in our discussion. Political correctness is frequently said in liberal institutes like universities. Um, and it's often the younger generations that advocate for the benefits of political correctness, while other generations may deem this as language policing or even Orwellian. That's just a, a word that I like. Um, do you have any comments on why this divide may exist between these different generations? I think the biggest thing is probably just lack of context. The environment in which, for instance, my parents grew up is vastly different from the environment that I grew up in North America. So in some ways, there's a cultural divide. I think there's also a generational divide. And in some ways, I think it comes down to something as granular as personal preferences and communication styles. Some people don't mind being more fact-based and straightforward about something, even if it's abrasive, even if it might not be sensitive to other people's feelings. Other people are hypersensitive. So I think it's a lot of different factors that sort of play into it. When it comes to this idea of political correctness being Orwellian, I think it's maybe one of those things where if it's being thrown around everywhere without people actually putting thought into what should fall under political correctness. Like, for instance, if somebody looked at me and they pointed at me and said, oh, she's Asian, that's not something that is racist. It's not something that is politically incorrect. It's simply a statement of fact, right? Now, if they, somebody pointed at me and they said, you're yellow, that's a bit of a more blurry zone because technically my skin color is more yellow, but it also carries such a charged racist undertone. So it depends on the speaker. It depends on the person that is the subject of the speaker. And it also depends on the relationship between those two people. I actually, funny enough, saw a stand-up comedy once on like a very similar subject. And this person took the term, do you swear on this channel or no? We do. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> just making <laughs> sure. <laughs> and the person took the term bitch. Okay. And it's this guy that was doing stand up comedy, and I can't remember his name. And he was taking the example of the term bitch. Girls, we can throw that around, right? When you go out for a night out, it's like, hey, bitch, how's it going? Like, you know, like, but we have that understanding that it's coming from a friendly place and stuff, right? But you wouldn't just, like, look at a stranger across the street and be like, hey, bitch, what's up? Like, they're probably going to give you some very odd looks. Wait, you're not supposed to do that? <laughs> I mean, Kev, sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> you know? So I think when people kind of say, oh, but why can't I just say what I want to say and people will deal with it, they're kind of ignoring the fact that, you know, when sometimes you want to say exactly what you want to say without filtering any of it, there needs to be a couple other things that need to be there to ensure that there is a common understanding between both parties involved that this is not coming from an offensive place. 
it's a very multifaceted question. I think like if I tried to tell my conservative Christian Korean parents, um, mm. if I tried to explain to them this idea of political correctness, they'd probably look at me like I just came out of like a loony. And they're like, what's what? What are you talking about? You know? And it's not because they're trying to be ignorant, but they simply don't have the same kind of background understanding because they didn't grow up in this time. Like they didn't spend their teenage years wrapped up around Facebook and MySpace and trying to figure out what is the right term to use to address a certain individual. It's different, it's different contexts that they live in. You know, kind of why I think political correctness, uh, without talking about it in long form, makes it very difficult to get to an understanding of. If you just say political correctness, many people have their own uh, definitions of it and their own opinions about it, even knowing the definition of it. Like your parents, for example, my parents, generations not even that far away from ours um, have their own differences and opinions. So uh, definitely important to discuss it in a, a long discussion, kind of like what we're doing and what I hope this podcast episode was about. Like, I can even give you an example. It doesn't even need to be a generational gap. So a former colleague of mine, he was two years older than me. So not much of a generation gap at all. Did his education mm. in North America, did his master's in North America. He just so happened to have a fiance who was half Korean and half Japanese. She was still living back in Japan. And at the time when this discussion was happening, they were engaged, but she doesn't really speak much English and he doesn't speak much Japanese whatever good reason they had, they got engaged and they were getting ready to be married. And at one point he was telling me, oh, you know, I'm trying to convince her to move to Canada. I was like, okay, but she also has a job in Japan. All of her family and friends are there. She doesn't speak English. So do you plan on learning Japanese? And he's like, no. I was like, okay, so like, you're going to try to get her to move to Canada. Okay, but how is it going to work afterwards? He's like, well, I'm trying to get her to move in with me. In East Asia, it's still most commonly looked down upon for people to live together without being married, especially in a conservative culture like Japan. So I was like, well, mm. how's that lying with her side of the family and how comfortable does she feel about it? And he literally says, and I'm not making this up, he literally says, well, as you know, women in Asia, their value depreciates as they age. Since she's almost 30 and I'm almost 30, there is enough pressure for me to leverage her to come here and move in with me so that we might be able to get married in a couple of years time. Because if she stays in Asia, she'll be considered an old spinster. Now, this is where it gets Damn. complicated. The fact is, what he's saying isn't factually wrong. There is still a lot of age stigma against single women in East Asia. In Chinese, there's even a specific term that's called shengyu, which is leftover woman, and that's been covered by BBC before in a documentary. So the concept does exist in Asia, but I wouldn't consider it politically correct, and I would personally consider it borderline racist because it's coming from a place where somebody is trying to exploit that fact in a derogatory manner to try to get what they want. And they're mm. talking about this to another Asian woman in a way where, well, you know, we know your values go down as time passes. So sooner or later, as a man from North America, I don't have to deal with that same cultural nonsense. So you guys will have to bend to my way. It's a very interesting episode. I thought a lot about it. My knee-jerk reaction was, holy crap, this is so racist. And I don't think that knee-jerk reaction was wrong, given the tone and the intent of that message that was delivered. 
But also there was a big part of me that deliberated a lot for a long time afterwards because technically, factually, what he said wasn't necessarily incorrect. You know, I think it's episodes like this where you can even just see, like, that's why I brought up the idea of context and the relationship before. You know, you might be saying something that is factually accurate, but if you don't have the understanding and the common knowledge that this is not coming from a place of malintent, then it does become offensive. It does become politically incorrect. I guess and this is just me sort of reflecting on the story you just mentioned. In my head, it's, you know, two cultures colliding, right? One where somebody obviously doesn't have the experience. Well, both of them, I guess, didn't have the experience of either culture. Or, like you said, it kind of knew and exploited an aspect of a culture and just talked about it like it was, yeah, a benefit to them, which is certainly um, close to the, the racist spectrum. It's a very loaded kind of an anecdote. It's one that I still kind of grapple with from time to time especially as an Asian woman living in North America and I date a white person. And even though he himself is an immigrant, the immediate assumption that people see when they see me is, oh, an immigrant woman with a non-immigrant partner. It's like that BBC interview where the wife of the child that came in to drag the kid out of the father's interview was immediately assumed to be a babysitter. Like it's, it's there. Um, the label that you want to put on it, is it racism? Is it politically correctness? I, I don't know, honestly. But I think yeah. a lot of it is just on kind of a subconscious biases that people tend to carry and sometimes very deliberate decision making in my case um, of people who decide to exploit certain, I guess, cultural differences. Now, your anecdote, you know, to myself and I assume some of the listeners uh, listening right now, he should have been aware of what he was saying. Uh, oh, or maybe 100%. he was aware and, di and didn't care. I guess my further question to that would be, you know, as we push society's progressive front, which we should, could there be any negative consequences of being hyper-conscious of one's language? There is a fine line between being aware and sensitive of your language and not speaking. And myself included, I don't think we necessarily know the difference between those two things. So in the case of my anecdote, as you said, he has no excuses. That should have been so obvious. He's a very well-educated person. He works in an environment where there are colleagues from all around the world. He had absolutely no excuse. Not everything is always that obvious, right? I'm a little hesitant to kind of raise this example, but like it's to me kind of that question that one of my friends raised to me the other day, you know, since when did black become an offensive term and everybody's suddenly African-American, but what if I'm not African-American? What if I feel just North American, but people just assume I'm African because my skin is black, but I don't find it a problem to be called black. You know, it, it, it ends up opening a whole new can of worms, I think. I think the core intent of people being cautious is a good thing. It means that you're trying to make sure that you're not hurting somebody else's feelings or you're not committing a faux pas by accident. I think we still have so much more growing to do and learning when it comes to how to navigate that sensitivity. Some people might call it censorship or, you know, as, as you said, Orwellian. But the reality is only really Orwellian to people who never was a victim to this language. It feels Orwellian because those who previously were in the position to say these words without consequences are now being told that you can't do that without negative consequences. So I think that also kind of shines a bit of a light in certain cases about, well, what was your position in society and 
what were your privileges that you weren't aware of until it started to get questioned now? No, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, you did mention there uh, that fine line between awareness of language and not speaking at all. I guess a topic I didn't go into for political correctness was the idea that this now culture, you know, whether you're at either extreme, could lead to shutting down discussion entirely. My question to you would be, how can we all talk about political correctness openly without shutting down discussion by either side of the aisle? I grapple with this just within my household. <laughs> with my own <laughs> When they say something, I'm like, you really, re- you really shouldn't be saying that, you know? <laughs> Honestly, I think the most approachable way from like a person-to-person perspective is not looking at this from a I'm right, you're wrong. I have a better understanding than you kind of a perspective and instead taking more of the approach of I know that this is what you're trying to say at the core, but this is why this can be hurtful. Because I think the problem is when you posit an idea and somebody said something and you're like, you shouldn't say that. That's politically incorrect. Then it immediately kind of puts you on a bit of a pedestal. Like, I know what political correctness means that you don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you point them out and be like, well, I wouldn't say that because that could mean this, this, this. I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but it could come across that way and that can hurt X, Y, Z people. I think there's a very big difference between informing somebody of something that they perhaps didn't quite have the chance to think about before the words came out of their mouth versus passing judgment on them, being like, oh, look at you. You still don't have an understanding of what modern society standards are. You don't have the social etiquette. You know what I mean? It's, it's a balance. That's a good point. Uh, I never really thought about the whole looking down on somebody when you mention um, what someone may have said is politically incorrect. And, you know, if you don't explain why it is uh, sensitive to people, that could easily, you know, feel like you're acting superior towards them. That's a that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, that's different. If somebody meant what they said and they don't give a damn, then, you know, screw you too. I wish you good life. Let's not meet each other again. But, you know, there are there are times when people simply don't realize that this is now something that is considered a sensitivity. Like the world has changed so much just in the last decade. It's it's gotten smaller right with internet and facebook and everybody especially for people in like older generations that aren't as up to speed in some ways a little unfair to expect them to have the level of awareness that our generation has when we grew up with all this technology and communication tools around us when as far as they're concerned their world was never that large their world never involved this many people that they needed to worry about in terms of being sensitive towards, right? You know, to me, it kind of feels like a privilege for them. <laughs> in some Versus ways, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's hard, right? It's a privilege to have that, but also it's, with every privilege comes a burden. There are two sides to every coin. The smaller the world gets, the more you know, the more Armageddon it seems sometimes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And, you know, a lot of my the segment before this, and especially when I talked about the origins of first world, um, I brought up the term privilege, which is now something we hear about a lot, no matter who you are. I'm really curious about your opinion on this or your comments on why it may be difficult to reflect on our own level of privilege. I wonder if this is nature or nurture. For every person, it's always easier to focus on what you don't have than what you do. 
And sometimes you don't know that you have something until you realize that it's missing. The idea of being a visible minority, right? It's a very abstract concept to, you know, a lot of people. I'm drawing by very broad brush strokes right now. So let's say typically what we say invisible minority in North America is a person that is not white, right? Regardless of what the demographic statistics actually are. Me being an Asian person in North America and identifying as a visible minority comes with that experience, right? And the idea to feel like you are not in the minority is what we consider privilege. My partner has a very different experience. He was a white man growing up in South Africa. So he was actually a visible minority in a very convoluted social settings where the economic privileges were still in favor of the minority. I think it's always easier to notice what you don't have or what is now taken away from you. So for me, in terms of like a privilege, I talk about being a woman and a visible minority and all that, but the reality is compared to the world, I am like in one of the most privileged brackets because I do live in a very safe country where democracy is still functioning, um, where I still have the right to claim equal rights as my male colleagues and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In some ways, it's it feels terrible to put it this way, but the most realistic thing I think from at least myself is that you don't really know what you don't have unless you have a point of comparison. That's not to say that, you know, you should look at somebody from a poorer country or who's in a less privileged position to, to you and make yourself feel better about yourself. Not, it's not that at all. But sometimes I think you do need a bit of that reality check to be like, oh, wow, I guess there is a reality where there are these things that I take for granted in my life might not actually be there for me. I think what you mentioned there was uh, something along the lines of negative bias. So, you know, what we focus on is, you mentioned if we're, we don't have something, if we're, if we're missing something in our lives, that's something we focus our, a lot of our attention on versus the stuff that we already have. And obviously privilege comes, you know, privilege has a definition for sure, uh, a word definition, but the privilege that, you know, top people have in your life or in your surroundings might be different depending on where you're located in the world, like you mentioned. Um, like you and mentioned. This raises a very interesting word for me. First world problems. <laughs> right? I think that's like the epitome of the irony of this recognition of privilege combined with your refusal to also acknowledge that it's a privilege. Right? <laughs> It's like, ah, man, my Instagram won't upload within 10 seconds. Rant, rant, rant to friend in a text. First world problems, haha. You know what I mean? Always the haha at the end. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Like, privilege is something that is also a concept that I was raised a lot with in terms of, like, you need to know how good you got. Because I grew up in Korea until grade six. If I didn't want to eat something on the table, on the dinner table, the immediate go-to from my parents was, you know what, I drive you down just two and a half hours, we'll be at the border with North Korea, and they don't have anything to eat over there. You need to know how good you got it. And it sounds Jesus extreme, Christ. but it's, it sounds extreme, but it's not. The Korean, the Korean War only ended in ceasefire in 1950. So before I left Korea, which is like early 2000s, we were only, what, handful of decades out of war where South suddenly became like a shining star and the North was still struggling. Everything was very much still put in the perspective of relativism though, right? It's like you got it so much better compared to those kids in North Korea. And it wasn't for 
us to feel superior, but it was like that reality check that my parents were continuously trying to give me, which is, this could be a hell lot worse than you. You don't want carrots? Some people would kill for carrot scraps right now. I mean, it's hard to explain to somebody what privilege is without pointing to an example of what it's like to not have that. Yeah. I think that's the real difficulty. And that's where it gets dicey because some people take that as, oh, you're trying to, you know, show how much better you got it than other people. I mean, sure, in some cases that might be the intent if somebody is really coming in with that kind of malicious desire. But I think in other cases, again, going back, factually, you do have it better than so much of the world. Does that make it a derogatory statement against the people that you're being compared to? I don't know. I think what's hard is it becomes a very fast-tracked conversation of the privileged being like, oh, but you could have it so much worse. You think I didn't work to have all of this? Versus like the people who do not feel privileged being like, but look at me, look how much I'm struggling. To take like the example that comes most to the top of my head, real estate in Canada between what we now call boomer generation versus millennials. There is such an ongoing debate with like a lot of millennials and folks in our generation saying, boomers, you guys could afford to actually buy a house, you know, living off of a salary coming straight out of high school. You never had to go to university. You were never saddled with university debt. Now you're the ones that are hoarding all these investment properties and making, you know, housing unaffordable for people in North America. And then it gets turned around. The boomers then go, well, you think I didn't work hard for this? You think I didn't wake up at the crack of dawn to try to put bread on the table? You think I didn't have to bust my ass trying to actually get us to where we are financially? I still work. It might not be the standard that you guys have, but I still worked my butt off to get here. And it quickly turns into a cyclical debate. It's a hard thing to point out when somebody is privileged versus not. And I think that's why in some ways it's a really good thing that folks have actually started to do a lot of that introspection themselves, you right. know, especially in North, North America. It's a sensitive topic and also one that's very subjective, I think. Now this leads into my final serious question I have for you, <laughs> Tiff. <laughs> um, you mentioned, you know, the introspective part, which, again, is something I went into in the segment before this episode about your privilege or about all our privilege. So my question to you is a more positive question, really. How can privilege be harnessed in that positive way rather than the opportunistic nepotism it currently gets associated with? Ooh. I think that's what we're seeing a lot when it comes to the concept of an ally. Like we're seeing that a lot in the non-binary community, pride, for instance. And we also see it a lot in feminism where we say, look, guys, if you see locker room talk, you are one of the guys you wouldn't get dismissed to say, oh, you're just saying that because you're a girl. Call them out on it, you know? I think this is kind of where it all comes back to the idea of intent. If you have the privilege and if you're aware of the privilege and you have the good intent to help the cause, then I think there's no one right way to help the cause. Like, let me put it this way. I saw a video a couple months ago of a East Asian student that was being mugged on the streets of I think it was London in the UK. Um, there was a guy that was trying to steal his bike and he had a knife and he was coming around trying to grab it from the guy. And there was a white male YouTuber who happened to be live streaming on his channel on the streets at the time. And he ran over with his camera and yelled at the guy to go back away. And he stayed there with the guy until the police arrived. Stayed there with the victim. 
if you look at that, in some ways, it's, you know, very much an act of courage and bravery and all that. But it's also him using his position of privilege in a very positive way. He is a white man in Britain, in downtown London, who has the privilege of having the viewership of thousands of people that happened to be watching his live stream at the time versus somebody who didn't have that privilege in that immediate moment. It's a very simplistic example, but I think here's the other thing too. Privilege isn't something that necessarily has to be a permanent quality. It could be something that is momentum, right? It's like, it could be something that is temporary. You can have privilege for a temporary amount of time. This guy had the temporary privilege that he was able to harness to use to help somebody who was in a lesser privileged perspective, right? It's about intent. Like, that's all I come back to say. And it even comes down to things like cultural sensitivities over like Halloween costumes, for instance. Coming from East Asia, there's so much debate, like can a non-Asian person dress up as a ninja or a geisha or Mulan or whatever else? And I even disagree with other Asian friends on this. And I think that's exactly kind of the nature of this issue of political correctness. I focus on, well, if they're doing it because they admire it and they think it's super dope and cool, then I think it's a good thing. I think it's, you know, them paying homage to something that's a part of our culture and history. Other people say it's them exploiting the fact that they can get away with it and, you know, using that privilege of being not a visible minority to make fun of other people's cultures and belittling it into costumes. Back in high school, I was um, a co-president with um, an Asian friend of mine, an Asian male. And one of our goals for, we ran a canned food drive, uh, an annual canned food drive at our high school. Our top goal, if we raised enough cans um, that we told everybody in our school, was that if we reached this top goal, myself and my Asian co-president counterpart would dress up as a geisha. Now, that was not our idea. This was an idea that our student body committee kind of voiced to us. And I kind of wonder now if that had, well, I don't wonder, I pretty much know now (laughs) that had had to do with, you know, us being Asian, had to be. Um, And we were sort of just given that, given that identity in a sort of not very appropriate way. And I still think about it now, like, was that agreeing to do that? Was that something an insensitive on my part? Definitely insensitive on the student body to suggest such an idea, but um, agreeing to do that, we could have totally said no to it, but we did agree to do it. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I think the focus there is the fact that they specifically singled out geisha, right? Mm. Geisha is a Japanese culture. Exactly. You're not Japanese. So there's already a first form of simplification there where they're treating all Asians as the same, which is a very common thing that we see here. Um, yes. And the second form, too, is it's a form of ignorance. If they, re- if they wanted to make this a comedic effort, they could have just said you have to cross-dress. They didn't have right. to make you guys into a geisha. You know, I think this is kind of where a lot of that subconscious bias that comes in, right? Um, they looked at two Asian guys and thought, oh, if they cross-dress, then they must be a geisha, right? I think that's where it right. becomes offensive. In the times, like maybe at the time, you know, it wasn't as such a big deal, but certainly nowadays that would never happen anymore. No. No, I, I don't think so. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I think as with all things, they, you really kind of need to know where to pick your battles and what is really something that you need to fight for. 
you're not going to hackle down every kid that decides that Mulan is super cool and they don't happen to be Asian. I think where it gets offensive is, you know, if there is a very stark history of oppression, like in the case of Native Americans or indigenous people in Canada, and somebody who completely ignores that history and, you know, shows up at a hockey game wearing a chief's feather hat. It's a complex thing. I think there's a lot about relationships between what those two things represent. Like, I can assure you, if you went to Korea and told a Korean girl just on the street to like, hey, I want to see you dressed up as a geisha, they will beat you up. (laughs) Because there is a a political history between Korea and Japan, right? So it's not just about the context now, but it's also about the historical relationship between the things that you're trying to actually represent. Which is why, again, this idea of political correctness is such a moving target. Because it really depends on where you place yourself. Right? In history and geography, like it's, uh, it changes constantly. Again, political correctness is uh, a hot topic, I think, mainly because of the, the different opinions everybody has. But more importantly, it's such a broad, it's such a broad term that changes depending on where you are. And that's something you've mentioned uh, many times throughout this discussion. So uh, again, it's super important to talk about this in, in um, a longer discussion than somebody saying an insensitivity and then everyone just shutting them down versus actually talking about it. Why is it insensitive? Why might somebody be offended by what you say? Or even the opposite, you know, why change the way or be aware of the language that you say so and also sometimes you just have to walk away from it not everybody's going to be convinced by your persuasion and you kind of just have to live with that sometimes you just have to walk away from it and that's hard especially if it's you know your family for instance i think it's also in some ways a little bit arrogant to think that you somehow have this holy knowledge and vested power in your language of persuasion to be able to change the mindset of every person you ever come across right that's my goal (laughs) <laughs> one one interviewee at a time, eh, Kev? Well, it's actually the well the, the people I interview are the ones who do that to me. So uh, you've you've basically answered all the questions I I had. You made it through the gauntlet, Tiff. Well done, well done. <laughs> <laughs> they were hard questions, just so everyone knows. I'm actually <laughs> they were really hard curious. Even... I'm actually yeah, really sorry. curious how the audience is going to react. Because I don't know what I don't know what your core demographics of your audience is. I don't know if you gather statistics on that or anything like that. But I'm honestly really curious how other people might react because these are personal opinions between two people having a conversation. Like I'm treating this as essentially a fireside chat. But I'm sure there are yes. things that I said that some people disagree with. And I'm honestly really curious because I think that would demonstrate, you know, kind of what I said earlier on about how different people have a different take on what political correctness is and should be. It is targeted towards, um, I guess, my social circle, which would be mainly graduate students or early career researchers. But definitely it's targeted towards people who I feel are starting to be more aware of language uh, and more aware of where they are in their in their lives, especially at this stage um, and how that sort of impacts the way they think about the world. Uh, At least that's what I think it is. But yeah, we've made it to the final question. Final, extremely serious question. No, I'm joking. This is, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> this is uh, now the fun question. or Well, actually, it's a replacement of the fun question this season. So um, for the people that are listening, they've 
I've been aware that uh, I've created this new segment called literal or metaphor. Um, and the segment was created to kind of tie today's expression, which was first world or the, the expression of the, the episode with the person's experience so that they can sort of connect with what I talked about um, before the communication topic, which today was political correctness. So uh, again, today's expression was first world. And I did send you these two questions. Hopefully you do remember them. And normally the interviewee chooses either the literal or metaphorical question. Which one would you like? Let's go with literal. This one's a good one. This one's a good one. <laughs> okay, so Tiffany chose the literal question. Uh, the literal question was, so again, the topic or the, sorry, the expression today was first world. So the first world in our solar system is Mercury. Let's say we discovered that Mercury actually has intelligent life who wanted to meet our global leaders. And during this meeting, how would we fuck up the relationship <laughs> knowing what we know about the human experience? Uh, just one way. <laughs> Let's say, let's narrow it down to no more than three. <laughs> I mean, there's at least going to be one person that asks, like, do you really have an ET? But um, <laughs> I don't think things would go wrong in the first meeting. <laughs> maybe like the second or third. I thought you were going to say the first minute. I thought you were no, going to say the first may minute. Maybe like the second or third. I think we as humans are very good at doing the initial pleasantries as much as most adults will swear that small talk is the bane of their existence. But I think when it comes to actually present, trying to give like a good first impression, I think we're actually not terrible at it. I think where things might start falling apart when we start asking them about things that we could get from them. Like maybe mm. if we jump that gun too soon. Right. Like if right. we're like, oh, so you have intelligent life on your planet. How much water do you guys have? Or like, <laughs> do you guys also have a ton of natural resources? <laughs> what do you guys do with the resources? Can we get some? Like, um, you know, I, I think it's going to take more than just the first meeting for things to go wrong. But maybe when interests start getting involved and we start making assumptions about how much we can get away with pressing them for what we want versus, you know, kind of not offering them anything of substantive value in return and eventually pissing them off enough. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of the dynamic that we see between countries and on, on this one planet. Yeah, it's interesting that we can kind of extrapolate, you know, how international affairs um, meetings would go down or negotiations, whatever, would go down, kind of extrapolate that towards if this ever happens in the future, which, you know, it's going to happen um, in terms of, yeah, how those discussions will play out, definitely about resources and, you know, all that stuff. But um, the politics of interplanetary discussions definitely would have some sort of differences, but I can't really think of it, obviously, because it hasn't happened yet. But um, I think it's always like a fine balance between curiosity versus interests, right? And also, like, humans have built up this idea of what they think intelligent alien life is going to look on another planet for decades, decades. Mm. Like, we don't know if they're going to come looking like Jabba the Hutt or E.T. or just like another regular person that's slightly taller at this point. So I feel like a lot of our prejudices and kind of the fantasies that we've built up around them might end up playing as a bit of a subconscious bias to our detriment. 
I personally think they're all going to look like Timothy Chalamet and Dune, but <laughs> you know, that's just why, a dream why of particularly mine. that depiction? <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of relevancy. <laughs> really. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> It's the newest like sci-fi movie out. Trying right now. to impress upon your youthfulness so that you look more hip. Is that what this is? <laughs> Don't call it out. <laughs> great answer, yeah. though. Honestly, great answer. Thanks. And this has been such a great discussion. I can talk to you about political correctness um, and even just politics in general forever <laughs> for a long time <laughs> but in terms of time you know I, I don't want to take up too much of yours at the end of these discussions i invite the interviewee to sort of summarize what we talked about um, anything they would like to highlight from our discussion so your final thoughts tiff and any self-promotion if you have any that you would like to do <laughs> i appreciate the opportunity for a self-promotion but uh i don't really have i don't really have anything unless you're very there's interested. an instagram account that uh, <laughs> you can potentially it's join, not mine right? it belongs to my cats ollie and missy i'm sure kevin <laughs> can link it sure there you go there's the plug um in terms of summary of discussion um i don't know i think i think we had a really interesting discussion about how this definition of political correctness can be so different not just by person, but by context, by environment, by historical times, by your location in the world, about how there are so many different facets to it, whether it's conscious or subconscious, almost trying to dissect the very fine lines between what is factually accurate versus what is offensive versus what is simply insensitive, you know, what political correctness might or might not look like depending on the culture and the background you come from, especially if you're not coming from North America and you don't have a solely Eurocentric outlook of the world. So it was a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of loaded questions. Hopefully <laughs> many people will hate me for my answers. But uh, no, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Definitely super fun. Always a pleasure to talk about um, difficult topics uh, with you, Tiffany. So uh, again, it's been a pleasure knowing you for since GAC. And is this, uh, is this you setting up to no longer be friends with me in case the reactions <laughs> go sideways? It's been a pleasure knowing you. I've known you for how many years now? This is the I, first I, time you're closing with me this way in a conversation. Why did I say so. that? I don't know. It's like you're like, hey, nice knowing you. See you later. <laughs> Whenever I'm in these formal sort of formats, uh, my ability to converse becomes very limited or <laughs> outrageous so <laughs> i mean like i guess i'm not seeing you after this call like if this is where it's headed <laughs> <laughs> i honestly never say that to her people <laughs> i don't know why i said that but you barely say but you're usually like hey cheers see ya and you hang up so <laughs> <laughs> true so that was weird <laughs> let's just end off with Thank you. Yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you for coming on the episode. Sounds fun. Thanks. <laughs> the ever-changing dialogue around political correctness is something we shouldn't be put off by, but rather engage with. When we see the response towards offense or towards being offended, should we not take a step back and determine whether we fully understand either point of view rather than inject our own worldview into the matter? Deep talk. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed learning about worlds and politics. 
These larger topics, outside of the general science I speak about, grow from my interest in linguistics and origins of ideas, particularly those that can change based on life experience, culture, and geography. In terms of updates, for those who have made it to the episode end, I co-first authored a recent review published in the journal MDPI Cells about microRNA impact on gut permeability. Super cool stuff, do check it out. Also just finished the major component for my teaching at Scholars Ireland, which was a blast. Because of that jam-packed schedule I now have, I will be changing my episode uploads to a bi-weekly format rather than a weekly one. But yes, thanks so much for listening. It really does truly mean a lot to me. Do remember to follow the podcast Instagram page for visual updates and sneak peeks. And of course, anyone following will be placed into the draw to win some metaphors and swag, whatever that ends up being, on my 40th episode and season 4 finale. Rate, subscribe, share, message, megaphone this episode to your family and friends. Tune in to the next episode of the season, but until then, stay skeptical but curious.